0: For that, Acts chapter 1, let's stand for the reading of God's word. We'll read from verse 1 down through verse 8, and then we'll be down through verse number 12 uh, in the message this evening. And so the Bible says there in verse 1, "...the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandment unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion." By many infallible proofs, having seen of them uh, forty, being seen of them rather forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, speaking of John the Baptist, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence, uh, when. They therefore were come together. They asked of him, saying, "Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel?" And he said unto them, "It is not for you to know the times of the seasons, which the Father hath put in His own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth." If you've been attending a Baptist church for any length of time, at least one that's worth its salt, you're very familiar with Acts 1-8, and it's a verse that's used regularly around here. But sometimes it's good to take a verse like this that's common and put it in context and understand it within the context here. We're going to seek to do that tonight. We begin verse by verse through the book of Acts, and uh, the title of the message this evening is Christ's command to every Christian. What is that command to every Christian? Let's pray. Lord, help us this evening to. Uh, glean much from the word of God and Lord to be uh, willing to be obedient to what we hear this evening and Lord may we not just come in and go out and it be another week in church Uh, but Lord may our heart be malleable and tender and Lord uh, would you show us where we can be uh, more in line with you and then help us to make that effort to make up that difference in Jesus name we pray amen you may be seated have you ever stopped to think about the book of Acts, it is a it is a peculiar name for a book. Um, now, if you've grown up in church your whole life, you just think of you know Acts like you think of Job, or First and Second Kings. You, you've heard it so many times uh, that you know you just it's the book of Acts. But what a, what a, if you stop and think about it for a moment? It's sort of an odd thing to name a book the book of Acts. Like when I was a kid, I thought like you know like a lumberjack uses. Maybe and some people that are new to church they hear the, uh, book, see the book Job and they think it's the book of Job. How many of you made that mistake early on in your Christian life? Job, the book of Job. Uh, but the book of Acts. Uh, what does that word Acts mean? Well, Acts is plural for act, and we know what to act means. The word act can either be a noun or an adjective. Here's the definition of the word act: anything done, being done, or to be done. Deed, performance. Another definition would be this the process of doing. The process of doing. Acts is an action book. It's an action book. Uh, Now, uh, some history of the book as we get in here. The book was written by a doctor named Luke. This was Paul's personal physician. And if you know much about Paul, Paul needed a personal physician because he was always getting beat up. He was always getting uh, whipped. And I'm glad someone thought that was funny. Amen. Um, uh, he was always getting beat up and whipped and stoned and left for dead and you know shipwrecked and uh, water in his lungs. And I wonder if uh, Luke ever had to do mouth to mouth. No, I shouldn't even think that way. But I wonder, uh, you know, Luke had his hands full uh, with uh, just taking care of of the Apostle Paul. But uh, Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. Is, this is the same Luke that wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is nothing more than a continuation or a sequel to his gospel that he wrote. He wrote the book to a man named Theophilus. And all of the digging I've done, no one really, really knows who Theophilus was. Some have thought that maybe this was a legal argument that was written out while Paul was in Roman prison. Both Luke and Acts were a legal argument to sort of get him out of jail to be presented before the Roman government. Uh, Others believe that Theophilus was just a rich, wealthy man who donated a lot of money to the missions program out of the church of Antioch. History does seem to tell us that there was a Theophilus that lived in Antioch of great wealth. And so this was just sort of like a really long missions letter back to Theophilus. Uh, we don't really know who Theophilus was. Some have speculated that he was maybe uh, the book of Luke. He's addressed as the most high Theophilus. And so some have thought that maybe he was uh, maybe uh, some man that had some sort of governmental power. We don't know exactly who he was, but this is who the book was written to. Look back at Acts chapter 1 and verse number 1. Acts 1 verse 1. The Bible says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Again, the former treatise is the gospel of Luke. That's the former uh, writing that he's Referring back to the book of, of Acts, opens the book opens with the ascension of Christ into heaven. Right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he commissions his disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit to become witnesses of the gospel message, both across the street from where they lived and around the globe. So, across the street and across the globe, uh, the first half of the book focuses on the accomplishments of what happens. When a group of believers uh, get, in, get in tune with each other, get in one accord with one another, they're prayed, uh, they're prayed up, they're spirit-led, what happens when a core of believers gets that Holy Spirit power and acts on it? That's what the first half of the book points at. And then the second half of the book of Acts shows us what happens when one man or one woman decides to wholly yield himself or herself to the Lord, and let the Spirit of God radically move them to do some radical things uh, for the Lord. The question this evening is this: Are you an obedient Christian? Now, I put this message together long before I, uh, I, I discovered what I was going to be teaching in my life group this morning. Several of you in here are in my life group at uh, the 9:45 hour, and the lesson today was on obedience out of the life of Peter. And so this will be repetitive for those that were in there. But are you an obedient Christian? Um, Do you do what you want to do? Or do you do what God wants you to do? When your life does not match up with the Bible, which one wins out? Do you obey partially or do you obey fully? Do you obey immediately or do you obey when you're good and ready to obey? Uh, I'm a parent. I've got kids in my house, and they've gotten to the place now where they pretty much obey first time every time, and we're thankful for that. We worked hard to get them there. They weren't born that way. Trust me, they weren't born that way. It took a long time for us to get them uh, to that place, but when they were really little, we would tell them obey first time every time, first time every time. How many times have the two of you heard me say obey first time every time? If you had a dollar, you wouldn't need me anymore. You could pay your own way through life. Obey first time, every time. And you know what? In the Christian life, it is a good habit for us to get into where we learn to obey first time, every time, Uh, where we're obedient to the leading of the Lord, where we trust and we obey. When God, through His Word, asks you to start doing something or to stop doing something, do you comply? And by the way, don't let an imperfect preacher get between you and God if an imperfect preacher stands up and preaches a perfect word don't sit there and go well I'm not going to do it because that pastor I know about problems in his life if you get close enough to me you're going to know about some problems in my life but if it's true it's true and it doesn't matter if a drunk from prison stands up here and preaches it if it's true it's true and we need to try to do our best uh, to live it And so again, the question I would pose to you this evening before we get into the outline is this, are you an obedient Christian? Do you obey God's word or do you push it to the side when it isn't convenient for your lifestyle? Uh, Many people only do what they want to do and for everything else that they don't do, they make excuses for why they can't do it. They can't. Do it. Pastor Morales uh, used to say here at our church all the time, if you want it bad enough, you'll find a way. If you don't want it, you'll find an excuse. You'll find an excuse. And I like that. And I'm going to keep using that. You'll either find a way or you'll find an excuse. But one way or the other, we're either going to comply or we're going to disobey and make, make excuses for why we're not doing it. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? Why did you eat the fruit? It was the woman that you gave me. Notice it wasn't his fault. It was her and his fault. Eve, why did you give the fruit to your husband? It was the serpent that you put in the garden. And she didn't blame God per se, but in essence she was. Right? Not Adam's fault, according to Adam. Not Eve's fault, according to Eve. And we... All can sit here and make excuses for why we're not obedient. But we need to develop a spirit, a culture within our heart of obedience. What happens when Christians obey their Christ? I mean, 100% obey their Christ. By the way, intellectually, can I ask you a question tonight? Is Jesus worthy of your obedience? Raise your hand if you believe Jesus is worthy of your obedience. Amen? Amen. Somebody put two hands up. I think that's great. Shouldn't we obey then? He's worthy. What would happen if we would just all obey the Lord? All kinds of wonderful things would happen. I put some down here. People's eternal destination are changed when we obey. People's earthly life is improved. Children are raised to love God. Addicts walk away from their addictions. Demonically possessed people are set free. Those who struggle with depression and anxiety, in this case, caused by sinful living, those, uh, those uh, feelings are replaced with peace and serenity. Fear is replaced by faith. Lust is replaced by by love, happiness is replaced by joy. A manipulative spirit is uh, replaced with sincerity. Selfishness is replaced with selfish selflessness, and our earthly kingdom building is replaced with His eternal kingdom building. Evil is swallowed up by a righteous lifestyle. That's what happens when we just decide to buy in and obey Jesus. On paper, it looks so good, but in practice, it's so hard. What happens when when Christians obey their Christ? What happens when Christians become passionate about Christ's passion? They begin to deeply care about the eternal souls of those around them. Our theme this year is Stand for Jesus. The book of Acts is what you get when a group of believers passionately stand, passionately take a stand. The book of Acts is nothing more than a group of believers who obeyed and stood. And then look what happened. And they recorded it in a history book called the book of Acts. Let's begin our journey through this breathtaking book. As we consider the first 12 verses of chapter 1. We've entitled the sermon this evening, Christ's Command to Every Christian. Number one, notice the disciples' cause. The disciples' cause. Look at chapter 1 and verse number 1. Chapter 1 and verse number 1. The Bible says, The former treatise of Ibedo Theophilus of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he taught the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, uh, ye, ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost many days hence. Now, the disciples would go forth and obey and do some pretty incredible things, but what was Their cause. What was that driving force behind it? Letter A, notice the word passion. Passion. Look back at verse number 3 there. It says, to whom also he showed himself, speaking of Jesus, he showed himself alive after his passion. That word passion there in the Greek means our word suffering. Suffering. Many of you here saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ. The suffering of. Of the Christ. Don't let this word pass you by. You read over Acts chapter 1. And you read right past that word. And it just uh, is almost missed on you. If you're not careful. Uh, this word in verse 3. Is the cause. That brings about the effect. That is the book of Acts. The suffering of in Christ. Of Christ. Was intense. It was intense. The suffering of Christ on the cross was so intense that the disciples took up the cause of his death, and the book of Acts happened. In fact, here we are, 2,000 years later, having church on the other side of the world from Jerusalem. Why? The works of the disciple in the book of Acts are in great part the reason why we are here tonight. What they did in this, in this book, Acts chapter, the book of Acts, is responsible for us having church. You understand that when the 120 gathered up in the room, some would argue that the church started with Jesus and the disciples. And if you take that viewpoint, I'm okay with that. My own opinion is that the church started with uh, the commissioning of the disciples. He sent them out. That 120 gathered in that upper room, and that was your first church. That was your first church. And He sent them forth... And they began the church. Why did that church go forth and do so many great things? Think about this. Jesus took these 12 men under his care for three and a half years. He, Jesus, was the perfect leader. He loved them. He taught them. Some leaders are so good at leading that their followers would run through a wall or even take a bullet on behalf of that leader. Jesus was the greatest leader to ever walk Planet Earth. Why? Because he was perfect. He was God. And then, after three and a half years, he was arrested. He was humiliated in front of a crowd. He was falsely tried and killed for crimes that he had not committed. And where were his disciples? Most of them went into hiding. Peter said, I'll take a bullet for you, Lord. Actually, I'll take a sword for you, Lord. But when push came to shove, Peter denied the Lord. Hey, but I give Peter credit. At least he was at the campfire. You know where the other nine were? Or rather the other, let's see, uh, Judas, let's see, the other eight were? You know where the other eight were? I had to do quick math in my head. I'm, I have a Christian school education, so it takes me a little longer. You have to forgive me, amen? Um, you, know the, uh, you know where the other eight were? They were hiding somewhere. They were afraid. Why did the disciples of Christ become so passionate? Why were they willing to take such a stand? Why did they rejoice when they were beaten for preaching the gospel of Jesus? Why were they willing to suffer a martyr's death? Because they deeply knew the passion of Christ. They knew how much he had suffered. The disciples' cause. What caused, What was their cause that, uh, that, that that sent them forth to do great? Again, the book of Acts is the effect from the cause. Well, cause and effect. Cause and effect. How many of you here with kids ever played the Milton Bradley game Mousetrap? Played the game Mousetrap. You enjoy that game. What do he call that? You know, you, you, you have... You hit one little thing, and you go through all this. There's a name for those contraptions. Root Goldberg. Goldberg. Okay, there's some really fancy ones out there, you know, uh, where they, not just mousetrap, where they have that, you know, this runs down here and hits this, and then, you know, the little man goes down the ladder, the monkey goes down the ladder and bumps something else, and that starts off with something else. And, you know, it's, it's like a domino effect, but in a more fancy way. Uh, Here we are all these years later because of the same concept. The death of Jesus set off a set of incredible events. Do you understand that the death of Jesus had to have been a powerful cause for the effect that 2,000 years later we're still meeting on a Sunday night in another culture on the other side of the world? Wow. Wow. So the cause, the cause, the disciples' cause, passion, letter B, notice, proofs, proofs. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. Look here. By many infallible proofs. The resurrection of Jesus, uh, Luke says here in the book of Acts, he says the resurrection of Jesus is proof. There is proof that Jesus rose from the dead. It says there being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Can the resurrection of Christ be proven? Luke says so. Luke says so. He says here that the resurrection of Christ is supported by, watch his wording here, many infallible proofs. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute here. If a man claims to be God, draws thousands of followers, walks away from the opportunity to be a political revolutionary, then predicts his own death, gives himself up to death, dies, and then raises himself from the dead... Maybe he is who he claims to be. Maybe he really was God. I would just say, you had better pay very close attention to this man and his teachings. Did Jesus raise from the dead? I'm not asking about your blind faith. A lot of people who go to a Baptist church, they just believe Jesus rose from the dead because they've been told Jesus rose from the dead. Have you ever actually looked into? Some of you have. But I would guess the large percentage of you in here just take it at the, you know, just, just take it because you grew up in a culture where Easter was celebrated and you were told that the Christ rose from the dead. But have you ever actually researched it and looked into it? Well, I have. Let me just share with you some thoughts here on many infallible proofs. Let me give you three this evening, and these won't be on the screen, but you can jot these down, all right? The first proof we have that Jesus rose from the dead is the empty tomb the empty tomb the earliest critics of Christianity did not deny the empty tomb in fact in Matthew chapter 28 verses 11 through 15 the guards were given bribe money to lie about why the tomb was empty all right and so uh, the first earliest critics did not deny that the tomb was empty there was no long term motive for anybody to steal the body for anyone to steal the body why would the roman government or the jewish leaders take uh, his body. There's no reason for that. You say, well, it was his disciples. They had motive to take his body. Well, hold on just a minute here. In the short term, I can see that. But in the long term, there was no motive for them to steal the body. Why would the disciples hide his body and then claim he was risen? Just a few hours earlier, they themselves were hiding in fear. We're not exactly talking about a courageous bunch here. Where would have they gotten the courage to take the body and then deal with the fallout? You say, oh, well, they did it in an emotional moment and uh, somebody had some crazy idea and they ran in there and they took it. Well, why would they take this body and then zealously propagate a lie all the way to their own martyred death? Don't you think at one point when they had the squeeze being put on them, they would have spoke up and said, okay, all right, I admit it, it wasn't true, it's all a lie. They didn't do that. Listen, some of these men were quartered, meaning tied to four separate horses, and the horses were sent in different directions. You think at some point they would have said something? Beheaded, stoned. John was boiled in oil and it didn't kill him. I can't imagine the burn marks on that poor man's body. Peter uh, crucified upside down on a cross. I'm getting ahead of my notes here. But listen, the empty tomb is proof in part that Jesus rose from the dead. Let me give you another one, the eyewitness accounts, the eyewitness accounts. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, tells us of some individuals and ultimately 500 people who claimed they had seen the risen Christ. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Now, there are three possibilities about these men, all right? There are three possibilities uh, in regards to these 500 people. Here they are. Either they were all lying... All right? That that is a possibility. They were all hallucinating. Or the third option is they were telling the truth. So let's take those three and break them down. All right? They were lying. All right? Let's look at those who claim the eyewitness accounts were lying. For this to be true means that these men were willing to be impoverished, rejected by society tortured and brutally murdered all to protect a lie. Secular historians tell us that uh, that uh, tell us this about the disciples of Jesus. Just the disciples of Jesus, all right? Stephen was stoned, James and Paul were beheaded, Philip, Jude, Bartholomew Bartholomew and Simon were crucified. James the Less was stoned and had his brains bashed out of his head with a club. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. A secular history tells us that as Andrew was being walked to his death, he said, I'm thankful to my father, I'm thankful to my Savior that I get to suffer. I feel unworthy to be able to suffer the way that he suffered for me, Yeah, sounds like a man who was lying, right? Mark was drugged to pieces behind a horse. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was killed by having a spear ran through his body. Luke was hanged and John was boiled in oil. The only way these followers of Jesus are willing to go through this is if they firmly believed that Jesus had risen from the dead and called them to follow him to the death. So again, the eyewitness accounts, some say they were lying. I say... No way. These men are not going to die like this, lying. And so the next uh, uh, theory or hypothesis is that they were hallucinating. And some claim that these folks experienced some sort of dream or hallucination. Now, please understand that hallucinations are very personal. How likely is it for 500 people to hallucinate about the exact same thing? I'm not buying that. Also, Hallucinations are very limited in scope. These folks claim to have seen Jesus eat bread and fish. They personally touched the nail prints in his hands and the spear wound in his side. Then that leaves only one option: these men must have been telling the truth. So we've seen the empty tomb is an infallible proof. The eyewitness accounts is an infallible truth. But maybe the greatest piece of evidence is the explosion of the church. The explosion of the church. Now, hear me out on this, all right? Stay engaged with me here. Jesus, where was Jesus publicly crucified? Talk to me. Where was that? Right outside of what city? Jerusalem. Some of you are uh, are uh, asleep on me here. He was crucified right outside the city of Jerusalem. Where did the first church explode? Does that sound like Does that sound like a a myth or a fairy tale? These people saw Jesus. They were responsible for having Jesus murdered. They watched his body get laid in that tomb. And then they had friends say to them, my buddy saw Jesus, or I saw Jesus. And you know where the revival took place? You know where this church exploded right next to the city where Jesus was killed and buried. You know what that means to me? That means it must have been true. He must have really risen from the dead. If Jesus' resurrection was a hoax, the people in Jerusalem would have been the first to know about it. The disciples did not go off to some remote village and deliver some sort of a hoax. No, they took the gospel directly to the people that had been responsible for seeing him killed. In fact, we'll get into Acts 2 here in the next couple of weeks. But when Peter is up preaching at Pentecost, he says, This is the Jesus who you crucified and has risen from the dead. He brought the message straight to the people who knew about it. Furthermore... Uh, and listen, this is, um, uh, this is maybe another really good piece of evidence that Jesus rose, the, rose from the dead. Here we are 2,000 years later, and there are still people who believe in Christ. Don't you think that if Jesus wasn't real, uh, Jesus wasn't a real leader or hadn't risen from the dead, wasn't the Christ? Don't you think that maybe his movement would have died a long time ago? The old phrase, time tells all. Time tells all. Well, how much longer does someone need to be around before, it's proven to, before he's proven to be the real deal, what was uh, the disciples' cause to perform the acts found in the book? Well, the passion or the suffering. We see the proofs. Notice letter C, the promise. The promise. Look at verse number four and five of Acts, chapter number one. The Bible says, "...and being assembled together with them, this is Jesus with the disciples." Commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. What is this promise? Which saith he, ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days since. Now, back in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15, we find Jesus promising the Comforter or Holy Ghost. And here again, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he promises that God, in the form of the Spirit, would come down and dwell within them and also empower them. Now, how many of you here can remember back to being children? We have children in the room. They don't have to think very far. They just have to think back to a couple of weeks ago. How many of you remember back to being a child and anticipating getting gifts on Christmas? How many of you remember that? All right, some of you still anticipate getting gifts on Christmas. One of the things I do to torture my wife is on her birthday, I get her gifts and I wrap them up. And about two days before her birthday, I put them out and I tell her, you're not allowed to touch. And she stands there like a little girl. I want, can I touch them? Can I pick them up and shake them? I want to know it's in there. My wife's love language is gifts. And she loves to give and get gifts. And so watching her with gifts is like watching a little 8-year-old on Christmas morning. It's great. And I get great joy out of torturing her. Amen? Uh, but um, uh, gifts. And, you know, I can remember being a little boy and just the anticipation of Christmas morning. Do you remember the, your, your best Christmas, your favorite Christmas and the gift that you got? How many of you remember you're thinking of that gift right now, okay? I got a huffy bicycle when I was like eight or nine years old, and that was the greatest gift I got as a little boy. You know, I, I, uh, I, I can just picture the disciples here. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to go up to heaven, and I'm going to give you a gift. I promise you a gift. And they say, well, Lord, what is this gift? And he says, God in the form of the Holy Spirit is going to come and live inside of you. Wow. Hey, I'm going to send you out to do a great work, but I'm going to put the engine of heaven inside of you to get it done. Boy, the disciples' cause, passion, Christ's suffering, proof, Christ's resurrection, promise, God's Spirit. Notice point number two, the disciples' concern. The disciples' concern. Look down at verse number 6 and 7 and here Jesus is saying, I'm going to send the Spirit of God. He's going to dwell in you. He's going to empower you. He's going to help you. And the disciples interject with a concern. I think that it's really interesting. You preach the Bible verse by verse and it's very applicable to the current events that are going on in the world today. Look at verse 6. The Bible says when they therefore were come together they asked of him saying, Lord wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, it is not Uh, For you to know the times of the seasons, which the Father hath put in his own power. Notice letter A, political revolution, political revolution. I have a bunch of uh, pastor friends and... Uh, They were um, uh, putting out these messages about preach, just get up, don't preach about what's going on in Washington, D.C., just preach the Bible, just preach the Bible. Well, when you're preaching the Bible verse by verse, and it lines up with what's going on in Washington, D.C., then you have to preach about what's going on in Washington, D.C. So I didn't do this, the Lord put this here for us this evening. So uh, watch this now, all throughout the ministry of Christ, the disciples did not want Jesus to die. Alright, turn over to Matthew chapter 16. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. They, what did the disciples want? They wanted him to rise up and lead a political revolution against the Roman government to whom they were subservient. What is it that the disciples wanted? The entire ministry of Jesus, they wanted him to be a political revolutionary. Why were they so dismayed when Jesus died? You ever stop and think about that? Didn't Jesus tell them over and over and over and over and over again, the Son of Man must die, the Son of Man must die, the Son of Man must die? And it went one ear and out the other because that wasn't what they wanted to hear. In fact, look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. The Bible says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. All right? So Jesus is telling them, yes, I'm the Christ and I'm going to die and I'm going to raise from the dead. Look what Peter does in verse 22. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. No, Jesus, you can't go die. Saying, be it far from thee, Lord, that uh, this shall not be unto thee. Hey, we have a plan for you, Jesus. You're not allowed to go off and die. You're going to be our political revolutionary. You're going to overthrow Roman tyranny. And you're going to give Israel their freedom back. Verse 23. But he, Jesus, turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now this is hard language when Jesus calls uh, Peter Satan, right? But why did he do that? You remember back in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 where uh, uh, the devil took Jesus into a high place and said, If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Here, Satan is working through Peter to try to push the same exact thing. Hey, you're going to be our political revolutionary. You're going to be our leader. But God, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, I didn't give you power from on high to be political revolutionaries. Rather, let her be, notice, spiritual revival. Spiritual revival. Look at verse number 7 of Acts chapter 1. Let's let the Bible. Get us all straightened out this evening. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 7. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. They asked him a political question, and he told them, Kings, come and go. Hey, I don't want to Americanize the Bible unnecessarily. And so I'm not going to give you an interpretation of this passage, but I will give you an application. Everybody look up here at me. The world is not going to end when Joe Biden is, is, is sworn in as president. Jesus is still sitting on the throne. And He allowed, he's allowing Joe Biden to be our president. Can I ask everyone here a favor? Call him President Biden. Once he's our president. And get on your knees and pray for the man. Pray for the man. If the Lord did not want him to be the president, then he wouldn't have been the president. He said, oh, that was cheating. Maybe. Maybe. Some here would say, definitely, but I'll stay with maybe. You think the Lord is capable of exposing that and... They asked a political question. They were all about politics. Sounds like some Christians I know. And Jesus said, hey, when it comes to politics, that's my business, not yours. It's my place to know. It's the seasons, the political seasons belong to me. Watch this. Many Christians have allowed political conservatism to mean more to them than Jesus Christ. They value the words of Rush Limbaugh more than the words of their pastor. They value the Constitution of the United States more than the Word of God. I'm stepping on toes right now, and I know I am, but these toes need to be stepped on. Some Christians love Donald Trump more than Jesus Christ. And it's not right. It's not right. Now, I want to be clear. I'm concerned about America. I am. I love this country. Listen now. Listen now. God has not called you, Christian, to be a political revolutionary. He's called you to be a spiritual revivalist. What would happen if Christians would just get on fire for God? I think this country could be turned around a whole lot faster if... Christians at the church house will be more concerned about what goes on at the church house than they are concerned about what goes on in Washington at the White House. I believe that if Christians would become as passionate about standing for Jesus as they are a political cause, we would have revival. The disciples struggled with the same thing. You're not alone. And if you are politically charged, the disciples were politically charged. They were politically charged for three and a half years, and then Jesus rose from the dead. He's getting ready to give them their commission, and they ask Him a political question! And so if you're politically charged, I understand. I get it. But understand that Jesus looked at them and said, don't worry about politics. Go and preach the Gospel. don't like it, take it up with Acts chapter 1. In just a few short short chapters, we'll see why the disciples were so concerned about politics. The disciple James would be executed by Herod, a Roman official. Great government persecution would be brought down on the church by Nero. How many of you know about the Roman Colosseums and Christians being fed to lions and being dipped in tar and set on fire to light the... uh, Yeah, that's tyranny. That's tyranny. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He said, when it comes to politics, leave that to me. I'm in charge. Now, you go vote, and you have a voice, and you can use it. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, King Jesus is in charge. He said here, I'm giving you power, but I'm not giving you power to overthrow governments. I'm giving you power for something different altogether. So what was it that he's giving them power for? Number three, notice, the disciples' commission. The disciples' commission. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. The Bible says, but ye shall receive, Jesus is speaking here, ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Notice letter A, our power. Our power. What power power does the Holy Ghost have? Have you ever stopped and thought about that? Have you ever done a study in the Bible of what the Holy Ghost did throughout the Bible? It's pretty amazing. Uh, I did a series here on the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, uh, a couple of years ago. On a Sunday evening, and um, we talked about this a little bit. Some of you may remember that the part of the Godhead, uh, this part of the Godhead, the Holy Ghost, is the one who does the heavy lifting all throughout the Bible. Um, Genesis chapter one verse two tells us that it was the Holy Spirit that created the earth. I'll share something with you interesting here. I learned this week the word universe. Universe. The word the the, the uh, prefix uni u n i means one. And verse, the word verse, means single sentence. The universe was created in one single sentence. Let there be light. Isn't that neat? The evolutionists say it took billions of years. The word universe by itself means that it was brought into existence with one single sentence. And who did it? God spoke the words and the Holy Ghost went to work. Genesis 1-2 tells us that the Spirit moved upon the face of the deep deep Romans chapter 8 verse 11 tells us that the holy it was the holy spirit that raised jesus from the dead 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 tells us it was the Holy Spirit that, took, that takes the blood of Jesus and washes away our sin. He is the one that washes away your sin, the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 tells us that the Holy Spirit gave the Scripture to the prophets. Now, think about that. Think about that just for a moment. The power that created everything from nothing. The power that uh, raised a dead man from the grave. He was, he was deity, but still brought Him back from the dead. The power that can wash away the deepest of sin stains. The power that can write and preserve God's Word to man. That is the power that you get when you get saved. Wow! You know, there's a word in the Bible for this power. It is the word omnipotent. All power. All Power. Hey, look, if God isn't using you to do his work, it isn't because you can't, it's because you won't. You won't what? You won't obey. Because he put in you the day you got saved all the power you need to do everything he's going to command you to do. You understand where I'm coming out here tonight? It's the Holy Ghost that lives in you. Now, it's not a question of do you have all of the Holy Ghost? You get all the Holy Ghost you're going to get when you get saved. The question is how much of the Holy Ghost, how much does the Holy Ghost have of you? We have to surrender and get ourselves out of the way. And when we do that, the Holy Ghost begins to take over in our life. And Galatians 5 tells us about the fruits that he bears. And Acts 1 tells us about the work that we begin to do. So, what is the purpose? all this power. Is it to go start political revolutions? No, it's not. What is it? Let her be notice Our purpose. Our purpose. Look at verse number 8 of Acts chapter 1. But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses, witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. If I were to, to pull someone to the side who knows you very much and say, give me a word that describes That person. What would that word be? Let's say I ask them to give ten words that describe you. Would one of them be, in some form or another, the word witness? Boy, that man, that woman is a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That person witnesses everything that moves. I've told you about Carl Hatch, right? The evangelist Carl Hatch. I told you about him going through the uh, airport. and He's passing tracks underneath the bathroom stalls. I told you about this. And uh, John R. Rice was in one of the stalls. Uh, John R. Rice is the one who uh, wrote The Sword of the Lord and was just a stalwart of a preacher in his day. He put a track on it and he said, Read this while you're waiting. He had a deep Mississippi accent. Read this while you're waiting. Read this while you're waiting. And uh, John R. Rice took it and said, Carl, is that you? They didn't even know they were in the same airport. Me and my dad one time went to pick up Carl Hatch from the airport. He was preaching at a church where we were at, and we're walking through the, you know, we're walking through the baggage claim area to leave and we turn around and he's gone. We look back and he stopped and he's he's got his New Testament out and he's witnessing to somebody. We go a little bit further and he's gone. You know, when I do that with my wife at the store, she's looking at shoes. When I do that with we did that with the hatch, he was telling someone about Jesus. When people talk about you. Do they describe you as someone who is a witness? Now, I'll be honest with you this evening, that's not going to be the first word at the top of the list. For me, I, I don't think if you were to ask most people, but I sure wish it was. This power was given to us so we would go forth and be witnesses, and be witnesses. Now, White Oak Baptist Church, I commend you because many of you have developed an attitude towards soul winning. You're showing up on Saturdays and you're getting involved. And you may not be quite there yet where you can take the Bible and lead someone to Christ, but you're involved in the system that's saying, A lot of people saved. And if you're showing up, hey, I praise God for you. And uh, be a witness for the Lord, both in Jerusalem and also on the other sides of the earth. Now, before I move on, this isn't a missions sermon, but I just want to make this one point. We're almost done with the message. I want to make this one point. How is it that we can go both across the street and around the globe? Can you be in all places at, at all times? Can I go to Jerusalem and then go to Judea and then go to the inner city, uh, uh, Samaria? Can I then be also in, you know, China and, and, and South America and Europe? Can I be in no, all? No, I can't. So I must go here and tell, and then I must give so others can go and tell. Now, I just want to ask this question. Do you give to, and I don't know who gives here, but do you give to our missions program? If not, then you can't be obedient to Acts 1.8 unless you're giving above your tithe and offering and giving to the missions program. You say, Pastor, I can't even afford a tithe. How am I supposed to give to missions? I would just say, start by giving a dollar a week or a dollar a month and ask the Lord to improve and increase your faith. Everybody's got a dollar. Everybody's got a dollar. All of us stop at a convenience store or a coffee shop uh, throughout the month and, and get something somewhere along the way. Everybody can find a dollar. My friend, I want to get to heaven, and I want to know that there are all sorts of people in heaven because I went here in Stratford, but I also sent for our missionaries to go all around the globe. Here at White Oak Baptist Church, we support 53 missionaries at $100 a month. You do the math, that's $5,300 a month of checks that are being cut and sent out around the globe, uh, uh, every single month. That's a lot of money. And listen, I think we can do more. I think we should do more. And so make sure you're doing your part to be a witness both at home and abroad. you have your outline there? Let's go over the outline together, okay? When we get to the alliterated word, let's all say it together. Ready? Number one, the disciples' cause. Number two, the disciples' concern. Number three, the disciples' commission. Number four, and lastly, notice, the Lord's command. The Lord's command. Look down at verse number nine of Acts chapter one. And when he, Jesus, had spoken these things, while they believed, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And when they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, uh, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then return they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey now i know all of us here have been going to church a long time most all of us here have been going to church a long time you're familiar with the story but just indulge me for a minute here jesus is talking he's giving them this final commission to go forth his last command should be our greatest call and he begins to float up off the earth and they're standing there and they're watching him they're on all of it go up and up and up and then he disappears in a cloud and he's gone wow crazy now, they had seen Jesus do some pretty spectacular things. But to see him levitate off the ground and just disappear into the clouds, this was something they had never seen before. Now, um, I went up to uh, Bristol last year, Bristol, Connecticut, and I went to the big hot air balloon show. How many of you have ever been up to the hot air balloon show? That is really neat. And you know what I found myself doing the whole time I was there? Wow, that's a big hot air balloon. And you know they, uh, a couple of them said "Remax" on the side. Isn't that what you think of when you think of a hot air balloon? the word "REmax." Don't they all seem to say "remax," the, the real estate agent? But I was doing this. And those was just the hot air balloons. I don't blame the disciples for doing this right here. Hey, you and I probably would have been doing the same thing. That dude just levitated off the Earth, and he's gone. And they stood there, and they stood there, and they stood there, and they stood there. And I think Jesus got into heaven, and he elbowed the father and said, I don't think they're ever going to stop staring. I think six months from now, they're still going to be standing there. Mouth hanging open. And so um, the father probably looked at Gabriel and said, Hey, go down there and tell him to get busy. And so Gabriel comes down and he says, Hey! Quit staring in the sky and get to work. And oh, they scattered like a bunch of roaches. Letter A, notice, some wait and watch. Some wait and watch. Letter B, some wait and work. Some wait and work. Look at, uh, turn over with me, if you would, to John chapter 9 and verse number 4. While you're turning there, let me just say, I love the book of Revelation. Love, 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 love the book of Revelation. I've studied it. You're promised a blessing if you read it. I believe the book of Revelation was given to the church to motivate them to keep going forward. Um, Let me say that this way. The book of Revelation was written so that the church would be incentivized to keep working. But you know what a lot of people do with the book of Revelation? They read it just to read it and study it just to study it. And you know, in essence, what they're doing? This right here. They're not doing anything. They're just staring up in the sky, waiting for Jesus to come back. A whole lot of Christians are just busy living their life, making their money. They're running on the hamster wheel of life, if you will. One day, Jesus is going to come back, and and Jesus is going to say, What did you do for me? And they're going to say, Well, I was waiting for you, Lord. And I was watching for you. I was. I was. Jesus is going to say, I didn't ask if you were watching for me. I didn't ask if you were waiting for me. I asked you what you did for me. Look at John chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus says here, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. What is that night? That night is the rapture. Boy, one day Jesus is going to come back in the clouds and while the word rapture is not found in the Bible, the concept of it is a trumpet's going to sound and uh, the dead in Christ shall rise first, first, Thess- first Thessalonians tells us. And then those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the air and will forever be with the Lord. And then we're to comfort one another with those words. How many are ready for Jesus to come back? Amen. Amen. You know, when Jesus comes back, the Holy Spirit is going to be taken off planet earth. The light will be gone and the tribulation will begin. It's going to be very ugly here on planet earth. Darkness and evil will rule and reign. You know, I am concerned about my neighbors. Because when Jesus comes back, my house is going to be vacated and there will be no one to tell them about Jesus. At least they won't have me to do it. How many can think of someone in your life who you don't believe is saved? Are you waiting and watching, or are you waiting and working? Now I uh, began this sermon with the question: Is Christ worthy of your obedience? And I began that with, I began that way for a reason. Here's why, all right. I've been in church now for 37 years. I've been saved for 33 of them. In essence, tonight this is a sermon on soul winning. I I can't tell you how many sermons on soul winning I have preached and heard combined. But in every single church I've ever been a part of, there are people that hear a sermon like this and they change nothing. And there will be people here tonight the same way. From Scripture, you know, you know. I mean, come on. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Acts 1, 8, Mark 16, 15 are just as much Bible as John 3, 16. You know, don't you? It's not a matter of, is it in there? You know it's in there. It's a matter of, are you going to be obedient? Some of you here are carrying some pretty heavy heavy burdens, some big problems in your life. Can I tell you one way to help yourself get past those burdens? Become a soul winner. You start seeing people get saved, boy, your burdens get a lot lighter a lot faster. I promise. I promise. You know what I do in the office when I can't take anymore? I go soul winning. I go tell someone about Jesus. It makes my load a whole lot less heavy seeing someone get saved. Hey, Christians, it's time we quit making excuses. It's time that we quit. Staring up in the clouds, waiting for Jesus to come back. It's time for us to get busy. It's time for us to be obedient. It's time for us to do our part. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Cause and effect. Cause and effect. Jesus died. He suffered. He rose from the dead. He gave us the promise of the Holy Spirit that engine that omnipotent powerful engine that lives inside of us my my what are we doing with it it's like owning if you're not if you're not being a witness for the lord it's like owning a lamborghini and having lost the keys the engine can't do anything with the keys lost lord help us tonight to commit to being obedient Lord, if White Oak Baptist Church, the group of people here in this church, would just put down their guard and their rebellion and disobedience and just obey you, first time and every time and completely and with the right spirit, if your passion for souls would become our passion for souls, we wouldn't just reach Stratford, we'd reach America. Lord, help us to lay aside our fears, our concerns, and help us to fully obey. Oh, Lord, would you do a great work in here tonight? Would you break someone's heart for the lost? The Spirit of God, would you prick and convict like only you can? In Jesus' name.